All right. We are in Romans chapter 13. And and when we were together last a couple weeks ago, uh, we started in verse 1. And we only looked at the first couple verses and uh, and ran out of time. Surprise, surprise. So, uh, today we're going to pick it up in verse 3 and uh, hopefully get down through about verse 7. So, let's read beginning in verse 1 and read down through verse 7. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God. Not, uh, excuse me, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Okay? Uh, so, as I said, last, uh, last time we looked at the first couple verses. So, look down at those verses and see if you can remember back two weeks. Uh, all you who are afflicted with dementia, see if you can remember back and, and recall what are some of the things we talked about. We covered a lot of the objections to that. We are always under obedience to God. So the law was against what God said. And there was a, you know, you obey God. Okay. That He is in charge and He does want us to do Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was I was very impressed by Gary last week or last time after our class because I used an illustration of somebody who had said something in the class when I last taught this passage, which was however many years ago, probably 15 years ago. And Gary came up and says, I remember when that guy said that. <laughs> Gary's one of the old timers here in the class. But uh, what else? Most discussions on the verses 
the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it that way, and we tend to run to the caveat because we want yeah, we want the yeah, we want the exceptions and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very important, and and, and I, it just strikes me how seemingly positive Paul is here about government because it's you know I don't know about you, but at least with me, it's not the way I naturally think. Okay, and and Paul is very positive here, and I and I think it is a, kind of a corrective of the Holy Spirit that. He doesn't that he doesn't mention any of the exceptions. He doesn't mention any of the what ifs here. He just he just lays it out. Uh, civil government is a thing that God has established. He's ordained it. If we're resisting it, we're resisting God, etc., etc., etc. Was he in prison when he wrote all this? Uh, no, but he was headed for it, <laughs> and he'd been in prison before. And that's the striking thing about Paul is because we know that Paul is is writing this in the context of the Roman Empire. Okay, and uh, and and we know that while there were many positive aspects of the Roman Empire, there were also many, many aspects of it that were really uh, not so desirable. None of us would want to live under that regime. And uh, so it's striking to me that these things were written in this particular context and written this way in this particular context. And I do think it serves then as a corrective to us. and one of the reasons I think we tend to be, uh, some of us tend to be so uh, negative about government is, is because we grew up in a democracy, because we grew up in a place where we have the freedom of speech to criticize government, to raise objections to the way things are done. And, and I think that tends to feed sometimes a mind frame that, uh, that isn't always honoring to the Lord. Yeah. I also think that we live uh, at quite some distance from, from civilized Yeah, society. yeah. Um, you know, the barbarians were not in it yet. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think Paul was probably very aware of the consequences and what life was like in a lawless, barbaric society. Yeah. And we are not. That's a really, I think that's a really great point. It's not one I particularly thought about, but I think that's a great point is, is we, we take a lawful, ordered society for granted. And so when the city fathers come down with some rule that kind of rattles my cage a little bit, I get pretty worked up. But I don't know, because I've never lived in that context, I don't know what it's like to live in a really chaotic society where, where the governments are constantly breaking down or not functioning. Yeah, Teresa. Well, I think it's interesting what Paul said, because he's been on both sides of, um, of the authority issue. I mean, he used yeah. to be a Pharisee, and then yeah. went, and then, so he saw, so he'd been part of the ruling class of the Jews, and then he saw that when the apostles, or not the when the apostles refused to obey the, like, the high priest command not to evangelize. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a great point too. Paul's kind of called, Paul has seen both sides of the issue, both on the government side and the recipient side. Yeah, submissive side. One of the things interesting about Paul is Paul's actually able to separate the government from why he's there in any case. Because it's not most of the time Paul was in trouble. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
yeah. economic deal, and they were the ones that got all spun out of control yeah. and created something where most of the time the government came in and they arrested Hall. And it is interesting, in a couple cases at least that we know of, Paul actually appeals to the established government in order to remedy the situation. He did at Philippi, and of course he did when he was arrested back in Judea there towards the end of his ministry. In both cases, you see him actually appealing up the chain, so to speak, in order to correct the wrong. So that, that is an interesting observation. You guys are, you guys are thinking good on these things. And I think a tendency that I've seen, uh, I, I have had this tendency myself some, and I've seen it in others, the tendency, and kind of like the example that we were using from the last time I talked through Romans 15 years ago or so, is the tendency is to take a law we don't like and to attach some spiritual significance to it so that I can justify not obeying the law. And, uh, and, and I think in reality there are few, very few laws that, are, that actually... Uh, fall into that category of creating a real conscience, a conflict of conscience. But we sometimes tend to try and and, and uh, attach that significance to a lot of laws that that uh, that I don't think uh, it should be attached to. Well, those are all good thoughts. Uh, let's go on and think more about this area because we still have a lot of questions left. Um, Paul is really setting forth in this passage the two primary reasons why we are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And the first reason for this mandate for believers to place themselves or, or recognize their position of submission under the civil authorities is, is this reason that all authority is from God. Ultimately, authority gets its authority from God. It's established by God. It's ordained by God. He says, if I'm resisting authority, I am opposing the ordinance of God. So the first reason has to do with the fact that uh, the first reason I should submit is, is the fact that authority is from God and it, this is God's thing. And so if I want to submit to God, I, I need to be in submission to the authority. Okay. The second one is kind of an outgrowth of that. And it has to do with the subject of the fear of authority. And that's what he begins to address in verse 3. And uh, so he says in verse 3, he says, For rulers are a cause for fear of, uh, for, uh, a cause of fear, not a cause of fear for good behavior, excuse me, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise for the same. So, so his... His kind of overriding view, his kind of dominant view of authority. Of, and, and again, we're talking about civil authority here. Uh, let me back up just a second. Uh, la the last time we were together and we talked about this, it's, it seems pretty clear he's talking about civil authority because he talks about rulers. He talks, uh, uh, he talks about uh, having the sword, he talks about paying taxes, etc., etc., etc. So it seems pretty clear that what he's that the authority that he's referring to here is 
civil authority. Now, the principle that all authority comes from God can apply to other realms of authority. Authority in the home, authority in the church, authority in the workplace, authority, etc., etc., etc. So, there are various realms of authority and these principles would apply across the board. But what Paul is particularly addressing here is the issue of civil authority. And, and, and the point that he begins to make here is that is that one of the functions, one of the purposes of civil authority uh, is, is to cause us to understand and want to do what is good. Okay? So he says, it's not a cause of fear for good behavior. Now, authority causes fear. You know, if you're cruising down the highway at about 85 mile an hour, okay, and you go whipping by that black and white parked over on the side, what's the first thing that happens? You know, your heart just kind of goes, you know, and you're just hoping that he didn't have his radar turned on, you know. How do I know all this? We won't discuss that, okay. But, but, uh, so you just have this, this, instinct of fear. Now, if you're driving down the highway and you're doing 69 mile an hour and you go whipping by the black and white, you don't have any problem, right? You're not afraid because you are doing what is good. Okay? So, so authority isn't there to make us afraid when we do good. Now, again, of course, here we could, you know, we could jump on the exceptions. We could say, well, what if or what if? But that's not what Paul's addressing. He's not addressing the what ifs. He's not addressing the caveats. Generally speaking, authority, the civil authority, does not cause us to fear what is doing, uh, fear when we're doing good, but it's there to cause us to fear when we do what is evil. So he says very simply, do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, yeah, I don't want to be afraid of authority. Oh, okay. Well, then just do what is good. And if you do what is good, he says, you will have no fear of authority. Now, uh, typically when I've read that passage uh, in the past, I've kind of thought, well, what he's saying is just obey the civil laws and you won't have any fear of authority. Uh, I, I think he's speaking more generally than that. If I go back and uh, last, as I've been studying at this time, as I think, I think he's speaking more generally. I think what he's saying is, if we are just in the habit of living the life of Christ, if we're in the habit of living good upstanding, loving, righteous lives, then we won't be afraid of authority. Because that's what authority is about. Authority is about having, getting us to do what is right in our relationships within the community and within the society. If I'm loving my neighbor as I love myself, uh, if, I'm, if I'm obeying the Ten Commandments, so to speak, if I'm walking with Christ, if I'm loving people as I ought to be loving people, then in general, I'm going to be doing the things that civil authority is, is about making sure that I do. Okay? I'm going to be doing the things that are conducive to an ordered, established, peaceful society. Okay? So, I, I, you know, I'm not going to be out there uh, 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 tearing up my neighbor's lawn or I'm not going to be driving 100 mile an hour through a school zone. You know, I'm not going to be doing those kind of things because I do, I, because I'm trying to honor Christ, because I'm trying to live as a believer and, and be an example uh, of, of, of Christ to the world. And if I'm doing that, in general, generally speaking, I'm not going to have a fear of authority. Yes, nothing. One of the things that comes to mind 
I know I used to do this, and I've been with people who do this. Even when they're doing the speed limit, and they see police, and they seem to lead at the right to slow down. And at the further review, it's like, why do you do that? Is it because you're in a habit of doing what you're not supposed to do? I do it because I don't trust the radar gun. <laughs> I'd like to say that. So that they, <laughs> yeah. But so in one so in one sense we could say that if we if we just simply live the kind of lives we ought to be living and we know we ought to be living as believers, then generally speaking we're not going to have any reason to be afraid of authority. There's a problem with that, though. So it goes a little bit further than that. And this brings up what is called the tutorial aspect of the law. Okay. The law is not just simply there to, to cause us to conform to some certain standard and to penalize us if we don't. But the law also serves a tutorial aspect. That is, it's our teacher. Okay? It helps us to understand. Okay. So, in one sense, I could say, if I just live as a Christian, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be the third base on this already. I'm going to be a long way there. Okay? But where the law comes in particularly, within a society, within a culture, again, we're talking about civil law, where, where the law comes in uh, at, at some points is is that even though I am living as a Christian, even as I am trying to honor the Lord, I don't always know what's best within a given society or within a given community for the good of that community and for the good of my neighbors. Now, some of us are old enough to remember the days when, and this was certainly true when I was growing up, to, and because I was a boy, and all boys are by nature pyromaniacs, okay, there was one chore I always liked to do, okay? I was growing up, and for a number of my years growing up, I grew up in a fairly rural part of Nebraska, and everybody had, in their backyards, out by the alley, they had a barrel. Remember that? Remember the barrel? What was the barrel for? Burning your trash, okay? So everybody's burning their trash, okay? It's unthinkable to us today, right? The thought of burning your trash, okay? But we all burned our trash. It was the one chore I always liked doing. I could take the trash out and play with fire for a few minutes, you know, because I was a boy. I don't know, maybe girls like doing that too, but I always thought it was pretty cool to go out and burn the trash, okay? And then when I was in high school, we moved to Colorado Springs. Now, Colorado Springs is not a rural community. It was at the time a fairly fairly large city, much bigger now, of course. But at the time, I think it probably had 200,000 people or so. But every home, every house in Colorado Springs, when we moved there in my high school years, every house had, in the backyard, out by the alley, had a, an incinerator. It wasn't a barrel anymore. We were more sophisticated because now we were big town folks. But we had a cement or brick uh, incinerator there in our backyard, <coughs> you know, <coughs> is a lot fancier than the old 55-gallon drum we had in Trenton, Nebraska. But it was out there, and we all went out and we burned our trash. And everybody in this whole big city was, you know, several times a week going out and burning their trash, right? And then while I lived in Colorado Springs, <coughs> excuse me, the city fathers decided that was no longer cool. Okay. And they said, you can't burn your trash anymore. You just put it in a barrel, we'll come by and we'll pick it up. Yeah. That's absurd. 
That's ridiculous. We always burn our trash. We have always burned our trash, right? But at some point, because of the change within society and the change within culture, we began to realize eventually that this was not healthy. So even though it was in some ways I thought more fun and more cool to go out and burn my trash, and I didn't like the city telling me I couldn't burn my trash anymore, the law served as a tutorial. Now, it took a long time because I still like burning things. <laughs> it took a long time, okay? But now I no longer think I want to burn my trash. I recognize that it's better that I put it in a polycart and roll it out to the street and the city comes and they take and they do whatever they do with it. You know, and it's off my mind, okay? But the idea is this is what is more loving to my neighbors. Now, I wouldn't have gotten that by reading the Bible. You know, I would never have learned from reading the Bible that I shouldn't burn my trash. Okay? So the point is, is that civil authority, as it establishes civil laws, many of these laws are things that serve as a tutorial. They serve to help us understand what it means to love my neighbor. Okay. So, so as I listen to the law, as I let the law teach me and instruct me, I become more cognizant. I become more aware of what it means to live within the society and within the culture that I live in, in a good way. So, Authority, he says, the rulers, he says, they are not a source of fear for good behavior, but for evil behavior. So, and actually, he says, if you do what is good, you're going to get, you're going to get praise from the authorities. Now, unfortunately, you know, I, I've never had one of the city councilmen come around and knock on my door and, and, and praise me for putting my trash out in the polycart area. You know, they, they haven't done that yet. I, maybe they'll be there this week. I don't know. But the general idea is that if I'm doing what is good, that is, if I am living as a Christian, as I relate to my neighbors and as I function within society and within culture, and if I am listening to the tutorial aspects of the law, and if I am submitting to the law because I recognize it's God's authority in my life to help me understand how to love my neighbor, if I am doing that, in general, I have no reason to be afraid of authority. But this does bring up the question about this whole issue of the fear of authority, which is what he goes on to and he addresses then in verse 4. And he talks about authority or rulers, <coughs> excuse me, as being the ministers of God or being the servants of God. Now, in verse 4, <coughs> he, he, he seems to talk more in the abstract. He says, he says, for it, meaning authority, is a minister of God. <coughs> I don't know what's wrong with my throat this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword. So, in one sense, he's kind of seems to be talking more in the abstract. He's talking about authority as an institution, but we know that he's really thinking in terms of not only the institution of authority, but he's thinking about the people 
who bear that authority. Because in verse 3, he's talked specifically about the rulers. And then when we get down to verse 6 again, he talks specifically about the rulers. And again, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we were together last, that, that the word that he's using there, the word for rulers, actually is not used so often in reference to the ultimate ruler. It's not used in reference to the king or the emperor. It's used most often in reference to things like governors and magistrates and the bureaucrats and people like that. Okay, So it's not just the big guy up at the top that he's talking about, but he's talking about all his minions, all the little guys down below, the policemen and the magistrates and the governors and all those sort of people. Those are also included in this rubric of authority that he's talking about. But he says in verse 4, he says that, that they are the ministers of God, or this authority is a minister of God, he says. And there are two aspects of its ministry. One is it's a minister to you for good. And then secondly, it's a minister of God avenging wrath on those who do evil. So it has a twofold purpose again. And, and one of its purposes, as we've seen, is to do you good. So when I, as a Christian, think about authority, civil authority, and, and when I think about those who function in that place of administering the authority of God within the civil sphere, whenever I think about those... My basic default attitude ought to be that these individuals are God's servant to me for good. I don't, uh, I don't always think that way. <laughs> okay? I don't always think that way. But I try to think that way. I remember when I first got my driver's license. And I knew it was inevitable that eventually I was going to have an encounter, you know. But but I've been raised a Christian, and I've been raised to think this way, and taught to think this way anyway, told I ought to think this way. And so I thought, what am I going to do the first time I get stopped by a policeman? You know? And sure enough, it was probably within six months after I got in my driver's license. I wasn't six blocks from the house, and the guy pulled me over. Pardon? No. Uh, got pulled over. And uh, and I don't uh, I think I was probably going a little fast or something. I don't remember why I got pulled over or whatever. And so the policeman came up and he talked to me and he and and he gave me a ticket. I don't remember whether it was a warning ticket or a real ticket or whatever, but he gave me a ticket. And when he finished, that's because I prepped for this for six months, okay, because I knew this day was coming. When he finished, I said, "Thank you for doing your job." I have my doubts that that policeman had ever heard that from a 16-year-old kid before, you know. But, and that's probably the only good time I've ever done. <laughs> I have been stopped since then, I have to admit, and I think I usually do thank them. Uh, I try to be thankful, or at least grateful, because they're helping me to be good. They're helping me to be good. They're helping me to do the thing that I want to do, which is be considerate and loving and thoughtful of my neighbor. Okay? They're helping me to do that. Now, I may not agree exactly that the speed limit should be 35. Maybe it should be 40 on this street. Or maybe it should be 50. Okay, 
but it's 35, okay? And the city has agreed, or the community has agreed that that's the speed limit, okay? And so, it's not a moral issue, folks. This isn't a conscience issue, you know? I don't have some kind of dictate from God that says I must drive 50 mile an hour, okay? So, if the city fathers say 35 mile an hour, and I get stopped because I'm going 40, then I ought to be grateful that this officer has helped me to be a better man, to be a better Christian. But he's not only doing that, he's not only helping me be good, but he's, he's doing good for me because he's making sure other people do good too. So he's helping to create an environment, an atmosphere that I want to live in. You know, I want to live in an environment that's relatively safe, relatively stable, relatively clean, etc., etc., etc. And these authorities not only help me do what's good, but they help other people do what's good. So it creates a better place for us all. It's like the point that Sarah brought up at the beginning about, you know, we are so far removed from the idea of a chaotic society where government either it does not exist or does not work. But, but I can tell you, you know, you and I both know that's a very terrible place to be, a very frightening place to be. And for those of you who have traveled some in the third world and been in third world places, you've seen places where government doesn't work very well. It may not be chaotic, but it doesn't work as well as it does here. And there are aspects of those places that I'm glad I don't have to put up with and I don't have to live in. Okay. Well, so government then is a is not a fear for good behavior, and it actually is for my good. And it is God's minister. You know, we think of ministers. What do we usually think of? You know, we think about the church staff, right? We think about the preacher and the associate preacher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and the youth. You know, we think about those people who do this spiritual work. But it's interesting to me that Paul uses these words, okay? Actually, when we use the word minister to refer to our, to refer to our pastor, we're actually bringing into the church a word that really was predominantly used within the secular culture. And... And uh, so it's interesting, there's this close tie between this. And when he gets down to, uh, in verse uh, 6, when he begins talking about taxes and he talks about, uh, about these rulers being the servants of God, he actually uses a word in the Greek from which we get our word liturgy. Okay, now when you talk about a liturgy, what are you usually talking about? L-I-T-U-R-G-Y. Liturgy. Is that right? Oh, did I get it right? L-I-T-U-R-G-Y. Liturgy. I wasn't picked up on it. Does anybody know what a liturgy is? Pardon? Okay, it's kind of the rites of the service. Uh, we, don't, we don't think of having a liturgy here in a Southern Baptist church, but we've got one. You know, we just don't think of it and we'd be loath to call it a liturgy, but we've got our order of worship. We've got the way we do worship and we do it pretty much the same way Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And a liturgy is uh, in, in what we think of as the higher churches like the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or places like that. Uh, 
they have it. They all, it's all written out exactly what's going to be said, et cetera, et cetera, during the worship service. OK, so the congregation says such and such and the, and the person up front, they say such and such. And then they have responsive readings and things like that. OK, we don't do much of that anymore, and particularly in our context. But it's the idea of the kind of the order of worship and the way worship is done. OK, well, the word that's used here for sermon is a word from which we get liturgy. OK, so there's a very close connection between the between the idea of this spiritual idea of ministry, the spiritual work, okay, and the work of the civil authority. He is really doing a spiritual work. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's actually um, the influence of this passage is actually seen in Europe in many places. Department government department heads are actually called ministers and yes. functions are called ministers. Yes, yes, yes. Precisely they still do that now. So, so this, so this, these rulers then, he says, are ministers of God. They are God's spiritual servants who are serving you for good, as we said. But then there's the flip side of it there in verse four. And the flip side is they are also ministers of God, avengers of avengers of wrath on those who do or practice evil. And so. So they have then not only this aspect of the what we think of as the tutorial aspect of the law, encouraging us to do law, encouraging us to do good, teaching us what is good, but they also carry here on their side what? Well, nowadays it's a firearm, right? <laughs> but in the old days it was a sword, and he says they do not bear the sword for nothing. It's not in vain. It's not. It's not just there for decorations, okay? It's there for a reason. Now, nowadays when somebody wears a sword, it usually is for decoration. And if you want something serious, you pack a firearm, right? But, but in Paul's day, you didn't wear a sword just for decoration. You wore it for a reason, particularly the civil authority. And when Paul says they do not bear the sword for nothing, there's a clear implication of what he's saying. Because the, the idea of the sword throughout Scripture is representative of the power to kill. Okay? It's the power to put to death. And repeatedly in Scripture, the sword is used symbolic of death or symbolic of the power of death or the power to put to death. Okay. Now, this idea of the civil authority having the power to put to death goes all the way back to where? Where does it show up first? Noah. Yeah, after the flood. Remember, the world got so wicked and it got so evil before the flood that God had to do what? Well, what did he do before he passed? Pardon? He started over, but before he started over, what did he do? He administered massive capital punishment. Right? Everybody except for Noah and his family died. Because the world had gotten so wicked, that was the only way to deal with it. And then when Noah comes off the ark there at the end, in Genesis chapter 9, in verse 6, God says, okay, from now on, this is what we're going to do. When somebody takes a life, you put them to death. Because, he says, 
Why? What's the reason God gives? Because they are made in the image of God. Okay. And so, most theologians view Genesis 9-6 as the establishment of human government. Okay. This is where the idea, the institution of human government begins. We don't see it in the early chapters of Genesis, but we begin to pick it up after Genesis chapter 9. Okay. So, we have the institution of human government, which is represented in God giving to mankind... Not just the opportunity, but the obligation to administer capital punishment when somebody has killed, has taken another life unjustifiably, right? So, so really, the idea of human government is rooted, the idea of the authority and the power of human government is rooted in its ability to administer capital punishment. Now, we've gotten in the last 100 or 200 years or so, we've gotten some kind of convoluted, fancified ideas about capital punishment, okay? And, And nowadays, what you hear people saying who argue against capital punishment is they argue against capital punishment theoretically on the basis of the value of human life. Human life is just too bad. We should never take it. But in reality, God instituted capital punishment because we were made in the likeness of God. So in reality, when we deny the viability of capital punishment, we are actually denigrating the value of human life. We are not honoring the value of human life. Now, of course, God made a serious mistake in Genesis chapter 9, right? Because nowadays we know that sometimes capital punishment is wrongly applied and innocent people die. And God didn't foresee that. He had no clue that was going to happen. If he had known that we would sometimes put to death somebody who did not deserve to die, he would never have given us the power of the sword, right? Obviously, that's facetious. God knew full well that that would happen. When it happens, it is evil and it is tragic. Right? But what God recognized is that the consequences of us not having the power of the sword is far greater. And what happened before the flood is evidence. Right? So, so I would argue very forcefully that government must have the prerogative of capital punishment. And I would argue very forcefully that it must be very, very, very carefully applied. Okay? So I don't have a lot of problem with being very careful with making sure that this trial has been just, that we really know this person is guilty, etc., that the crime that they've done is really... I have no problem with, with being very careful about it, but I do have a problem with saying we can't do this anymore because human life is too valuable. The fact is we can't stop doing it because human life is too valuable. Okay? So, so 
The sword represents in this passage, it represents the authority of government to give the ultimate penalty for a crime. But if it, if it communicates that, then it communicates not only that, but all of the lesser steps underneath that. If government has the authority to take a life, then it certainly has the authority to give lesser punishments for lesser crimes. Okay? So, it, so it entails the whole range of authority that government has to punish evildoers. Not just the taking of life, but all the various stages in between. And we see that very clearly in the Pentateuch, don't we? As we go through the Pentateuch, we read through the Pentateuch, there are some things that God says, okay, you put a person to death for this. But for other things, for other sins and for other offenses, there were lesser punishments, okay? And so quite clearly, this idea of the, of, of, of the civil government bearing the sword implies uh, this whole range of the, the power to punish evildoers all the way up to and including capital punishment. Okay. So he says, if you do what is wrong, then you'd better be afraid. Because God has given to those in authority the power to punish you for doing what is wrong. Okay? So then he gets to verse 5. And he says, Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for consciousness. So he kind of wraps up his argument here. But it's interesting to me what he does. Because when he gave his argument, starting in verse 1, his first argument for submission was the ordinance of God. Okay? This is God's thing, and God's established this, and, and if you're going to honor God and respect God, you submit to authority. Okay? So that was the first argument. Then his second argument was the argument from fear. Okay? You, you do this so you don't fear, because civil government, it's got the sword, and it can punish you. Okay? So, you know, you better fear if you're doing what is wrong. So, first argument is conscience. The second argument is fear. But when he wraps up his argument in verse 5, he reverses them. And he says, so it is necessary. In order, he says, not to fear. If you don't want to fear, it's necessary to be in submission. And if you want to operate according to your conscience, it's necessary to be in submission. But what's interesting to me is the way he says it. He says, he says, it is necessary, therefore, not only because of fear, but also for conscience sake. So, so what he's saying to us as believers who know that authority is established by God and that these people are God's ministers, because we know this, our highest motivation for submission to authority is not fear alone, but actually because we know these people are God's servants for our good, and so we want to submit because we love God. So he's saying, it is sufficient to obey authority from fear. But it's not the ideal. It's kind of like God, right? 
God gives us all kinds of reasons to obey Him out of fear. You know, He gives us a lot of warnings in Scripture, doesn't He? He says, if you do this, this is going to happen. If you fail to do this, this is going to happen, right? So He does this. He gives us reasons to fear. But God doesn't want us to just obey Him out of fear. That's good. If you do fear and you do obey, that's a, that's a positive step. That's a step in the right direction. But you're still not where God wants you to be. What He wants you to do is He wants you to obey Him because you love Him. Right? Not just because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't. Now, usually, again, it's kind of a tutorial thing. It might start out, I'm a little bit afraid, and so I do what God wants because I'm afraid. But as I grow and as I go on, eventually I learn to love God and then I do it more because I love Him. Right? Well, it's the same way with civil authority. If the only thing that gets you to obey the civil authority is the fact they bear the sword, well, good enough. Yeah, <laughs> at least you're obeying authority, and we're and we're getting this established, peaceful, ordered society that we need in order for the gospel to go out. Okay, if you'll just obey out of fear. But what God really wants you to go, He wants you to go to the next step. He wants your mind to be renewed, like He said there at the beginning of chapter 12. So you think the way He thinks. He wants us to obey authority because we recognize that. This is God's thing, and it's for my good. And then we get down to April 15th. Uh, no, I mean verse 6. Excuse me. <laughs> he says, because of this, because of what? Because these guys and gals are God's ministers, we pay taxes. Because they are, he says, God's servants, using that liturgy word again, they are God's servants devoting themselves to this very purpose. You know, it's the same principle of why we put money in the offering plate. We put money in the offering plate because there are people here at Trinity who have devoted themselves to ministering to us, to teaching us, to equipping us, to teaching our children, etc., 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 and so we, hopefully gladly, willingly, we put our money in the offering plate because those people have devoted themselves and they deserve to eat. You know, they kind of like eating like we like eating. And so, you know, because they're devoting so much time to this, we, we feed them. Well, God has some other ministers. And some of these ministers don't even know they're God's ministers, Right? But they're still God's ministers and God has them in a place and, and they are ministering to us for good and for fear. They're ministering to us. And so, every April 15th, if you're like me and you wait till the last minute, okay, or maybe you do it earlier, but, and you do it a lot of other times during the year too, right? You sit down and you write that check to the you know, to the IRS or to the Oklahoma Tax Commission or to whoever, whatever entity you're writing those checks to and we write a bunch of them every year, right? And as I'm writing that check, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, as I'm writing that check, it's an act of worship if my heart is right. Instead of just being mad that my taxes are so high and that so much money is being wasted and all that sort of thing, 
And I realize those are problems. Okay, I don't. You know, again, we're not talking about the caveats and the what else here. We're just talking about the general default attitude we ought to have before we complain about taxes being too high. Our first attitude ought to be, this is an act of worship. My response, my primary responsibility is to pay those taxes. Now, because I live in a democratic society, I also have a responsibility to ensure that government spends the money right and I should exercise my responsibilities in those areas as well. I have no problem with that, okay? But my first act of responsibility is to write that check. And as I'm writing that check, to be cognizant in my heart of hearts that I am helping to support a person who is the minister of God. And then he says in verse 7, Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear or respect to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, he's already dealt with the issue of taxes in verse 6. When he says custom to whom custom, because of the English words that's used there, we usually think of customs like. You know, I don't know, maybe you know, decorating our Christmas tree. You know, this is the customs we do and there are certain customs in our culture that, you know, that are kind of expected of us and so we just do those. Well, that's not what he really has in mind. The idea of custom here is the idea of, of like tariffs and custom taxes, okay? This is just another category of taxes, okay? We have all kinds of different... So it's just not, it's not just the income tax that we pay because they are ministers of God. The tariffs we pay, the customs we pay, the excise taxes we pay, all of those taxes. See, that's what he's doing. He, so he, he's, he's blowing a hole in our tendency to kind of try and limit this passage as tightly as we can limit it so we can get away with as much as we can get away with. He's blowing a hole in that. Okay, He's going to blow a bigger hole in it yet. Because then he goes on and he says, Fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. And... And as I said, the word fear there has the idea of respect. It's kind of like the fear of God, the idea of respect. And, and there are people who are just due respect because they hold a position. Not because they're outstanding characters. Not because they're you know the highest character in the world or the best at their job or whatever. It's because they hold that position of authority. When I got drafted into the Army, you know, one of the first things that happened to me after I got drafted into the Army Within the first few days, I had some drill sergeant standing in front of me, just screaming his head off at me. And I'm standing there going, this guy is an idiot. <laughs> I didn't say that to him. You know, for some reason, I didn't, I didn't think to say that to him. But this guy is an idiot. But one of the things they taught us in the Army is you salute the rank, not the person. So I saluted a lot of people that you know, took a lot of work to get that arm up there, you know. I had a captain when I was on Okinawa. I had a captain that, as far as his personal life was concerned, it was a wreck. Okay, but he was my commanding officer. Okay. And I had to keep remembering every time I saluted them, I'm saluting the rank, not the person. Okay. Respect to whom respect, fear to whom fear. So this is the... This is the default position. This is the overall disposition that you and I have of believers. Of course, there are all kinds of other issues we could raise. There are all kinds of what-ifs and caveats and, you know, and authorities who 
mess up and abuse that you know, of course there are all those kinds of things we know that scripture in other places talks about those things but here the Holy Spirit is trying to drive home to us what is our default mentality what is our overall disposition and as I was thinking about why is this so important to God you see because I can be obeying authority and chafing about it and griping about it and complaining about it all the time. I can be the kind of person who everybody knows I hate government. Okay? They could know that about me and I could make it pretty clear, you know. I just hate government. And then when some really big issue comes up, some issue of conscience where I say no to government, and the world sees me saying no to government. What do they think? Just something else to grab about. It's just Rick. But what if I exude in my life and in my words an overriding disposition of honor and respect to government and I recognize it's from God and I have this positive kind of attitude that Paul, and it's really my attitude so it, it's not just something queers but it actually flows out of me and people see that in my life and then an issue of conscience comes up then the government tells me I have to fund abortions or then the government tells me I have to do this or this which is a violation of my life. or then the government tells me that I cannot share the gospel of Christ and then it comes up and I say no I can't do that. Then what do they think? They think this is a big issue. And it puts the focus on the issue, doesn't it? Instead of the focus being on me, who's just this guy who's always griping about government, it puts the focus on my issue. It puts the focus on, boy, this is a big thing. Because Rick really thinks government's usually a good thing. And so if Rick says here, nothing doing... This is really a big issue. And it brings the focus down to where it ought to be. On the moral issue, on the issue of conscience. Well, you know, as I share these things and as I teach these things, I'm going, I got a lot of work to do, Rick. You know, I got a lot, a lot of work to do. And it's very difficult, particularly in our democratic society, because we not only have the opportunity to express our displeasure with government, we have a responsibility to do so, right? So that's part of our obligation. So we have to find that fine line between saying no government here and yes here. And, and, and we need to find that fine line between doing that and being disrespectful. And I find it's very easy to fall over that line. <laughs> it's very easy when I'm, when I'm just exercising my rights as a citizen to fall over that line and to say things in a tone of voice or in a way or with an attitude that is not Christ-honoring. Lord, help us to learn how to be on the right side of that line. Okay? Next week, we'll go on with the next verses.